What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Let's recap everything that's happened in the past couple of hours, starting with the European Central Bank. Did they just set the tone for the Fed next week? They raised 50. They're going full steam ahead despite this global banking turmoil. This after Credit Suisse got that $54 billion backstop from the Swiss National Bank. Those shares bouncing back today. Here's the last check of the equity here, up 5%, around two and a quarter. And as you just heard from David Faber's reporting, here at home, a group of financial institutions, up to eight were named in the Wall Street Journal, including Morgan Stanley and J.P. Morgan, are in talks to deposit roughly $20 billion in battered regional bank First Republic. FRC shares, look at this, have turned positive. This is a 40-point swing on the day here. At the lows this morning uh, in pre-market trade, First Republic was down 30% to around the low 20s. It's trading back up above $34 a share, which is interesting because, as you just heard Jim Labenthal saying, it's unclear exactly what this implies for the equity. But the equity holders seem to feel like this would be a positive move for them. The shares have been halted earlier in the session, and we'll bring more updates as we get them. Let's put this in context of the broader markets for a moment. The Dow now up to session highs, up 332 points. Look at the S&P. Yesterday closed below the 200-day. This probably has some people relieved charts-wise. It's adding 63 points, 1.6% to 39.55. And the Nasdaq has been a real source of strength. You just heard Brenda mention Adobe, but also um, AMD. These are stocks that are doing quite well in a difficult earlier tape today. The Nasdaq up 2%, and the FANG stocks in particular have been a point of strength since uh, January, really. And again today, look at Amazon up almost 5%. Same is true for Alphabet, Netflix, and Meta are also in the green. Now let's get right over to our Steve Leesman for the very latest on this curious juxtaposition today, Steve, where we have failing banks, lifelines being thrown everywhere, and yet major central bank rate hikes. Steve, I, to be honest, I, I keep thinking back to 2008. Remember when the European Central Bank did that final rate hike into the crisis? And we'll see yeah. uh, if they're repeating that this time around. Well, it, it, Kelly, it's a day not to blink because you could certainly miss something of importance. U.S. markets trading with more confidence right now that the Fed is going to hike next week by a quarter point. Perhaps in reaction to this news Faber was just talking about, big banks coordinating a rescue of First Republic Bank, and also perhaps in reaction to a 50 basis point rate hike by the European Central Bank that was not very badly received by markets, even perhaps taken well. Whatever the reason, the probability of a 25 basis point hike now at 83 percent just a 17% chance the Fed stands back, a reversal, by the way, of the positioning of yesterday's trade. ECB President Christine Lagarde might have shown Fed Chair Jay Powell the way by what you could call a dovish hike this morning. Here's what Lagarde did. She hiked by 50. She backed off promises of future hikes. There's the dovish part. Insisted the banks are in good shape and emphasized that there's a difference between the monetary policy tools and the financial stability tools. And she's going to use all of them. And she has the tools she needs. Of course, U.S. and Europe in somewhat different places. Take a look here. The inflation rate in the U.S. is 6 percent now. And it's been 
it's been falling eight and a half percent and kind of flat in Europe. The policy rate also quite a bit above where Europe is right now. 4.63 in the U.S. versus 3 percent in Europe. While it may be too early to tell, there's also some differences in the banking issues with the problem looking somewhat more tenuous in the U.S. among smaller banks. Europe right now, as far as we know, has just one big banking problem that maybe it solved with that $54 billion. But the lesson from the guard to Powell is he does have the option. He can pull off a dovish hike instead of what you might call a hawkish pause. Kelly? So, Steve, let me just recap. Uh, the headlines are coming fast and furious, which tells me that we are near the point of getting a potentially a big announcement here. First, the Wall Street Journal reporting potentially eight banks are involved with this lifeline to First Republic. Uh, now there are reports on Bloomberg that uh, these banks are in talks to provide uh, First Republic with 25 to $30 billion in total. Sorry, that was the journal. Bloomberg matched it. Obviously, David Faber was out there uh, with this as well. So what does this tell you as we watch First Republic shares, Steve, rallying on this news and the nature of the kind of rescue we're talking about here? What you think? We, we, Janet Yellen has almost simultaneously to all of this been on Capitol Hill saying the first time she heard of these problems at SFB was last Thursday. Um, the question is, have they ring fenced it now? Where do we go from here? Yeah, I mean, that's part of what they're going to try to do here, Kelly. You're absolutely right. Is to It looks like they've, they've created this broad program. Program number one is what's happening at the Fed, the discount window over there, and the new fund that will take your collateral at par and finance it. That's one. And two is this idea of treating it bank by bank. And of course, there's the other thing, which is there's this implicit insurance deposit. I don't know. I, I have to think there needs to be some caution on the equity here. If you don't know in this deal what happens to the equity, you're going to want to be a little bit careful here. But I'm just not familiar with what how the equity is going to be treated here in this deal. It's the major question uh, as we right. watch these shares gyrate. Right. Steve, thank you. And uh, stick around, if you will, as you sure. have been all day long. <laughs> Steve, Steve's in Florida for a different reason, but he's uh, holding down the Miami Bureau there. Let's bring in Bruce Kasman, chief economist and head of global economic research at J.P. Morgan. Uh, Steve Whiting is chief investment strategist at City Global Wealth Investments. And Margie Patel is senior portfolio manager at Allspring. Welcome to all of you. Margie, I'm just going to throw this to you with apologies for the late notice as this is breaking. But from the equity side of this, what are your thoughts uh, as it regards the future of First Republic on these reports? Well, I think it says uh, quite a bit of po positive confidence that this group of banks has in the viability of that bank. Uh, this cycle is very different. In 2008, the banks are crushed by trillions in bad mortgages, structured products. This time, the banks are in very good shape. Uh, even the, uh, the regional banks are in pretty good shape. And I think it was just a panic, thinking we might repeat the past no information about some of these banks. So I think a little bit of confidence building like this can stop this, this uh, incredible erosion in bank values. Prior to this, Margie, had you been a fan of the small and regional banks? And after these dislocations, are there any bargains you'd be looking for or are you totally on the sidelines now? No, I think the uh, the banks are very intriguing now because the values certainly uh, reflect uh, a lot of bad news. Uh, the biggest bad news for the banks has been what the Fed did by aggressively raising rates by four and a half percent, which really put a lot of the banks in a very bad position as far as taking in deposits compared to the very low asset base that they had. So I think that will roll over as the Fed realizes they've been too aggressive in raising rates and bail them out. And the uh, dividends, the price earnings ratio, the liquidity, the quality of the certainly the regionals and the money center banks are in very, very good shape. Nothing like 08. So I think they're actually quite interesting at this level. I think that's an interesting way, Steve and Bruce, to set us up for this chat about what the Fed should do here. Um, Bruce, 
I'll turn to you first. And what, you know, on the one hand, you could say, listen, jobless claims are low. Margie is, you know, sort of explaining the differences between now and 08. And, you know, so the Fed should keep hiking here. On the other hand, it seems like we'd be ignoring the facts playing out in front of our eyes that this is uh, we're on the precipice of something like a credit crunch. Well, I think what the Fed has to do here is find the balance, because we have to remember we've had very strong data on growth and we've had very high inflation news in the first couple of months of the year. So the Fed isn't done in fighting inflation. The Fed has financial stress to deal with and potentially stress that is going to broaden out here. I think, as Steve said, and as uh, uh, President Lagarde said, they're going to try to argue that the banking system is healthy. They have the tools to deal with that and they can separate that effort from inflation. However, I do think the Fed would have been considering a 50 basis point rate hike next week. It will now um, scale back to a 25 basis point hike, and it will be pretty open minded about the path ahead. Uh, Steve, Steve Whiting, are you bullish on the markets? I'm not. Um, I don't think that there's a catastrophe for the economy here, but we have uh, an erratic monetary policy that's caused this to go from zero to four and a half all within the space of a year. It's not the rate level, but starting at zero, going from a period of aggressive stimulus to aggressive restraint has caused problems, as you heard Margie talk about earlier. Uh, again, the official policy rate, or T-bill yields, are above the rate at which banks uh, earn on their existing asset base. And I think it's important to see this from an economic perspective that uh, monetary policy tightening works through banking channels, not just through financial markets. If you were to just take a look at credit spreads, price of equities, that's one thing. But we saw aggressive tightening of lending standards in the Federal Reserve Senior Loan Officer Survey before any of this turmoil happened, Yes. before any of the news of the past, right? And that this is showing, again, that monetary policy has moved very aggressively, uh, and this will only have an additional chilling effect on lending, which we're going to see in the small business sector, we're going to see across the economy. And Steve Leisman, we are, you know, as people continue to dissect what happened to SVB and should they have hedged their exposures, what were the management failures? Let's not forget, there's a couple other banks that have also gone under or on the precipice here. And it seems like this is the direct fallout from Fed tightening and not some kind of sideshow where they should just ignore it and, and keep going. Yeah, um, you know, Kelly, I want to relate a conversation I had with a source of mine back in 08 and 09 who was uh, really on top and made a lot of money from what happened to the uh, to the banking system. And I was talking to this person and saying, does this feel or seem like what happened back then? He said, absolutely not. And he thinks the market may be overstating the concern here. Uh, in, in part, I think we can talk, we've talked about this, Kelly, the idea that the problem here is a mismatch between what's on the asset side and the liability side but not actual soundness of the collateral itself, and that governments appear to be uh, well-positioned to solve that problem. And you saw that with what the Swiss National Bank did, providing credit to Credit Suisse, as well as what the uh, Fed has done with this new program here. And the question is whether or not, when you put up that January 24 Fed funds contract, have they now overdone what they think the Fed is going to do in terms of cuts on the backside of the quarter point hike next week. And if it ends up being something that is both isolated, in part because of better 
uh, capital better regulation that's out there, despite a couple failures. Nobody said uh, we were going to have no failures at all, Kelly. So um, and if they do, if they are able to contain this, then perhaps we move on and we get back to the inflation fight sooner rather than later. And the credit channel impact that Steve Whiting's talking about ends up being attenuated. So, Bruce Kasman, I guess that's where we shouldn't forget that the real economy in the meantime looks like it's heading into recession, maybe not, you know, this month. Um, But would you say that the odds of a recession before the end of the year are much higher now? And if so, again, why would that be an environment where the Fed should keep tightening? Well, I think we should recognize a couple of things here. First of all, the economy is not looking like it's sliding into recession right now. Second of all, that while the Fed has tightened uh, 450 basis points thus far, the stress in financial markets to this point has been very limited. I think what we're starting to see is transmission beginning to work. To the extent that we can ring fence uh, the the stress in the banking sector, we're going to have tighter credit conditions. Uh, The other thing is I think the Fed is going to respond to this by doing less. Uh, And I do think the economy will have a recession. I do think the Fed won't be easing until that recession comes. And I think we should be pretty open-minded as to whether that recession happens uh, sometime later this year in 2024. I don't think it's going to happen in the next three or four months, though. But does the calendar arrival matter when we know it's coming? And if we know it's coming, why would we keep tightening? Well, it's coming partly because the Fed needs to restrain demand enough to get inflation under control. It unfortunately probably does need a significantly higher unemployment rate. How much they can rely on lags and confidence in transmission is a question. Whether they overdo it is a question. But I think ultimately the problem here is that we will not be able to bring inflation back down to the Fed's comfort zone without the unemployment rate rising materially. Where does that leave you, Steve Whiting? In the meantime, we've seen the outperformance of technology, of the FANG stocks, as I mentioned. People are trying to figure out whether they can either look past that kind of event or pile into the growth stocks that are supposed to outperform in a low, broad growth environment. What would you say? Well, let me just first start by saying, take a look at what happened in the inflation data. You know, new uh, cycle highs in the cost of shelter, coincident with monetary tightening, which we know if we take a look at the data and listen to Chairman Powell talk about how this will come down. Core CPI X shelter has risen at a 2.2% rate in the past six months. So if you don't believe that we absolutely need a recession right now, it would be a pretty good time to stop. Now, again, I agree with everyone who said that the Fed and the ECB, again, both think that they can take regulatory actions that allow them uh, to go and keep pressing on with monetary tightening uh, as if we can segregate these sorts of things. But we should still be relatively cautious on cyclicals. You know, again, if I look back to 0809, I remember everyone saying, well, what happens in the financial markets? I haven't seen demand weakness yet. I haven't seen the economy weaken yet. Mm -hmm. And that's a big problem. So we want to be, again, Steve. a little more uh, worried about cyclicals and uh, small caps. Uh, we want to worry about industrials, materials. And the financials, again, are, are really now, as, as Margie said, is reflecting a good deal of trouble to come there. Although you're bearish on the industrials, Margie, I want to give you a quick word. You're bullish on the industrials, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I think the industrial part of the economy is in good shape. Those companies completely restructured their balance sheet. So many of them are impervious to increases in these rates by the Federal Reserve, unlike the banking system. And so I think that uh, left to their own devices, if the Fed steps back a bit, we should be very optimistic about industrials, defense companies, things like that. I think we'll do very, very well over the next year. Quick last word, Steve Leisman. 
Yeah, very quickly, just following what Steve Whiting was saying, I think what Lagarde is, 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 uh, is explaining to us is the idea that you try to keep financial stability and monetary policy separate until they inexorably come together, until the credit channel affects the economy and affects inflation. You try to keep them separate until you can't. I see Bruce Kasman nodding along there. Thank you all so much for your time today. It's great to see you. We really appreciate it. Steve Leisman, Bruce Kasman, uh, Steve Whiting, and Margie Patel. Still to come, the commodity collapse. Oil prices down 11% this week, and it's dragging down a lot of the big energy names. Halliburton, Devon, APA, Marathon, SLB, all down more than 10%. Have we reached capitulation or recession? That's next. Plus, contagion from the banks to the housing market. That would certainly turn the last crisis on its head, but it's exactly what could happen here. We'll explain why a failure at First Republic could be felt throughout the housing industry ahead. And as we head to break, here's a check on the markets. The strongest gains are in the Nasdaq up 2%, the Russell 2000s right behind them, the Dow's up 1%, the S&P up 58, and the 10-year is back up to 355. We're back after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome back. And believe it or not, banks are not the worst performing sector this week. That prize goes to energy as oil prices collapse. West Texas and Brent are both down 13 percent since Monday, putting them near their lowest levels since December of 2021. And we're down almost 50 percent from the highs last June. Everyone in the sector getting hurt, the producers, but also the services, Transocean, Halliburton, all of these names down more than 10 percent in the past week. And my next guest was calling for a big jump in oil prices this year when he had him on back in early December. Crude is basically flat since that call. So where does that leave us now? Let's ask Rob Thummel, portfolio manager at Tortoise Capital Advisors. Rob, it's good to see you. Are you scratching your head like everybody else here or is it simply a recession and Fed story? I think what's happening is we're just simply having a, the, the risk off switch or the risk switch has been turned off effectively here with this uncertainty in the banks. And that's just caused all a lot of sectors, including energy, uh, to trade off. And that's been led by, a, obviously, a pretty sharp decline in commodity prices, as you, as you highlighted, really, over the last uh, year and then obviously over the last week as well. So what it's shown us is that the supply-demand dynamic can't overcome monetary tightening. Is that right? Yeah. So if you look at the yeah the fundamentals, the operational fundamentals in the energy sector in particular, um, are, are, really are quite strong. The forecasts for, for for 2023 to have record levels of, uh, of of crude oil demand globally. You know the U.S. is going to produce a record level of natural gas. The U.S. is going to export a record level of LNG. So the U.S. has really solidified itself from an energy perspective as a, a provider of reliable, affordable energy, not only domestically but also to the rest of the world and. That'll be a positive for the energy sector throughout the year. 
We, when we talked in December, and all of us, everybody in the energy market thought that the China reopening was going to be a huge source of marginal demand. Why hasn't it been? What happened? And Pippa Stevens has highlighted this, that it's not our imagination when she tracks those uh, ships, those tankers that might be bringing crude to China. Those levels are down. They're not up. It's odd. Yeah, yeah, I think the expectation has always been, generally speaking, that the second half of the year would be stronger for, for the demand from China than, than the first half of the year. But Pip, but you're right, Pip is right. Um, it hasn't been quite as strong yet to start the year. But the forecasts are still, remember last year we had a decline in, in demand from China for oil. Um, that was the first time in a long, long time that we've seen that. This year, expect to see a, a significant surge, you know, 700,000 barrels a day of, of, of demand growth. Uh, from China is pretty significant. And this oil market is, is, is still very tight. It's, there's not a lot of excess capacity um, and maybe a little oversupplied today, but the second half of the year, if it becomes undersupplied even a little bit, that's going to result in higher prices. Yeah. So where, which names uh, or areas do you feel the strongest conviction about right now? And what are yeah, they? Right now, yeah. So right now, really like energy infrastructure, um, because the, the, those stocks rely less on, on real, really on the commodity price and more just on stable, consistent cash flows that happen. So if you take a company like Energy Transfer, it's a 10% dividend yield for investors. Um, you know, if oil prices are 50, 60, 90, uh, th their cash flow is still going to be plus or minus probably 5% the same amount for the year, and they're going to pay a lot of dividends to shareholders. Same thing with uh, Chenier Energy. You know, it's the largest LNG shipper in, in the U.S., uh, obviously, it's got a, the, the LNG trade and the U.S. being a provider of, of natural gas to the rest of the world is going to be something we're going to be talking about for decades to come. And Chenier has got long-term contracts that they're, they're going to be delivering a lot of uh, LNG and a lot of cash flow back to investors for, for a long period of time, uh, decades more than likely. All right. These market um, Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say these market pullbacks then perhaps, um, you know, providing an entry point. And, and I certainly I keep worrying, you know, once everyone reaches peak bearishness, do we get some kind of rebound move? It would uh, certainly complicate the macro here. Rob, for now, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Rob Thummel with Tortoise joining me today. Now, shares of Exxon are down along with the rest of the names and energy this week, even as the company is expanding its refinery footprint down in Texas. The U.S. grappling with super tight refining capacity that's been keeping pump prices elevated. Kayla Tausche is live in Beaumont with the very latest. Hi, Kayla. Hey, Kelly, despite the swings in prices, energy producers are still weighing how to meet long-term demand, which is expected to remain high. Take ExxonMobil, spending $2 billion to expand this century-old facility in the biggest U.S. refinery build-out in a decade. Construction began four years ago, well before President Biden called on producers to increase supply. This facility now close to adding 250,000 barrels a day to the market. That represents only about a 1.5% bump to the country's supply, but it could would be more material if another refinery goes offline, say during a hurricane or the economy picks up and there's a summer surge. Last year when the economy was really hot, U.S. was near 100% refining capacity. That's about 86% now. Exxon, Exxon President Karen McKee tells me even with the pivot toward lower emission products in the future, there's still going to be a lot more refining capacity needed. This is reliable supply of fuels that underpin modern life. And, you know, the pricing of fuel, of course, is a complex equation of taxes and supply and demand. So we're playing our part towards increasing supply so that there is enough supply to, to keep prices down in the market. 
Now, the White House did not provide a comment in response to this expansion, but the EIA, which is the official government data source on energy prices, says refining throughput is expected to rise again this year, even if prices don't quite reach the peak that they did last year. Kelly. Kayla, thank you. And, and by the way, Kayla, is this going to be the last refinery for a while? Well, there are some projects that are about to see uh, them come online. There's a Chevron facility, a Valero facility, and a Marathon facility, most here in Texas. But none of them are the size of this one that, that has expanded 65% of Exxon's capacity here. And like I said, it's the biggest expansion in a decade, and it will likely be the biggest for a long time to come, Kelly. All right, we'll see if it makes an impact on spreads and otherwise. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche reporting. Coming up, social stocks sharply higher today, like Pins and Snap. We'll look at what's driving that uh, snap now up seven and a half percent so that's extended plus shares of academy sports and outdoor soaring on the back of earnings and trading near an all-time high what about that consumer we'll talk to ceo ken hicks about it and as we head to break take a look at the dow heat map uh, the index up 342 points right now with intel travelers and microsoft the biggest gainers home depot verizon and visa those are lagging we're back after this you can live out your master chef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome back to The Exchange. 3094, that was the high for the Dow, which is up about 333 points right now. And the uh, NASDAQ up better than 2%. And the mega cap turnaround continues with Alphabet and Microsoft actually tracking for their best week since November now. These are just today's gains, by the way. Uh, Apple is on pace for its best week since early February. So a lot of green here across the board. And two social stocks are on the move as well. Snap and Pinterest both higher on those reports of a growing crackdown on TikTok. Everyone hoping a ban would lead to a boost in ad dollars here, engagement as well. Snap is now up 7.5% today. Pinterest adding 5%. And got to mention shares of Adobe up 5% after an earnings beat and a full year guidance hike of 5.5%. And that's been pretty consistent today. Management also updated the progress of the DOJ investigation into its $20 billion acquisition of Figma, saying they still expect that deal to close by year end. Elsewhere, Wells Fargo waving a red flag about commercial real estate, cutting their price target on New York landlord S.L. Green. You can see the equity here. It's down 3.5%. That brings it to its lowest level since July of 2009. This chart goes all the way back. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Keep hearing a lot more about commercial real estate. Kelly, welcome, everybody. This is your CNBC News update. The Senate just voted minutes ago, 68 to 27, to proceed on legislation that would repeal the 1991 and 2002 authorizations for the use of force that led to America's actions militarily in Kuwait and Iraq. The 2001 War on Terror authorization passed after the 9-11 attacks is not affected and is still being used for U.S. action against terror troop groups. Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee held a news conference to make the case for what they are calling Respect for the Second Amendment Act. Lindsey Graham, the panel's chair, says it will codify two Supreme Court decisions into federal law so that individuals can, in his words, sue those who are coming after your right to responsibly own a gun. And Kelly, you mentioned those social media stock moves. The White House says today the administration continues to support legislation that would give President Biden new powers to go after what it describes as foreign technology threats, including, yes, a potential TikTok ban.
Back to you. A lot going on in Washington these days. Thank you, Tyler. Still ahead, the yield on the 10-year dropping about half a point, but mortgage rates haven't moved. What's behind the disconnect, and what could the Fed decision next week mean for the housing market? We'll explore that next, and we'll see you after this quick break. Welcome back to The Exchange. The market's roughly split right now between a quarter-point rate hike and a flat-out pause at the Fed's meeting next week. And fresh data today illustrates the conundrum. Housing starts actually jumped by nearly 10% in February, with new home construction climbing for the first time in six months, even as mortgage rates hovered just below 7%. And new jobless claims returned to their near-historical lows as well. So should the Fed keep hiking in order to slow the economy or pause to make sure the banking system doesn't break as a result? Joining me to discuss are Aaron Sykes, chief economist with Nest Seekers International, She's here with me on set, along with our very own Diana Olick from Washington. And Zip Recruiter Chief Economist Julia Pollack has our read on jobs today. Welcome, everybody. Uh, Diana, Aaron, let me start with you guys. And Diana, was this just a one-off? On the housing starts, look, that headline number is a little bit misleading, up 10%. And that's because when you have multifamily versus single family in the same report, multifamily drove that entirely. Single family housing starts were only up 1% for the month. They were down 32% year over year. And building permits were also way down year over year. Multifamily is very volatile because one large building can really skew the numbers. And multifamily right now is actually being overproduced. We have more of that supply coming on the market than we've had in decades. It's the single family we're really focused on, and the builders are still very skittish right now about putting holes in the ground. Right. Aaron, describe the trends uh, that you're seeing. And if you didn't know that the Fed had been, I mean, it's kind of confusing about what they should do here. The market has in some ways been surprisingly resilient, or maybe it's starting to weaken more now. Yeah, so all of a sudden, everyone's a supply and demand expert, right? But that demand component is driven by a sense of stability and knowing that you're going to have a job so you can make decisions so that then we could supply and everything can even out. Now, what we were just discussing with multifamily housing, that is really driven by the lack of affordability Mm -hmm. because it's all rentals. People can't afford to save. They can't afford the mortgage rates anymore. They were just caught too short. So I think we're going to see more of the same. We're going to see people continuing to choose to rent. Although I'm a big fan of the idea that mimicking the herd brings regression to the mean. So when everybody else is renting, that's when you should really focus on buying. We have a terrific opportunity for buyers right now compared to last week. 30-year rates are almost down a point due to all of this volatility. That won't last. I suggest you lock it in today. It's not going to be here next week. So quick thing I want to highlight, and Aaron, you're pointing this out, and I think it's important for audience to connect the dots as well. First Republic is a big mortgage lender. So what has you worried as we watch today to try to figure out its future? What's at stake here? Yeah, so, you know, just to clarify, it's very different than Silicon Valley Bank. That primary client is 20 years old. It's a startup founder. And, you know, they don't have revenue. So that's why they keep drawing and drawing. The First Republic is much more stable in the long term. They have high, high net worth clientele that is diversified not uh, only across different banking systems, but within their investments. That said, I'm not making excuses for them. They are a huge jumbo loan originator because of that high net worth clientele. Sure. They also have a huge exposure to arms. 
So they have 40% of their mortgage business in seven one arms and 25% in five one arms. I, and I wonder to some extent, Diana, if that's the problem, you know, if they have a high exposure to fixed rate loans. They, this is such a twist from the credit crisis, right? In this case, <laughs> bank problems could come back on the housing market. Everyone who borrowed got a really low rate that they locked in. And now the banks are the ones left holding the bag. Yeah. And again, this is so different than what we've talked about during the Great Recession when it was the quality of the mortgages that was at stake. Today, the quality of mortgages is just excellent due to underwriting. And as you said, due to extraordinarily low interest rates that everybody refied into in the first two years of the pandemic. And nobody really is going to refi out of those because rates are now so much more than they were. And, and I would just say one thing about the opportunities for home buying right now. I don't think we're still in such a great place. We did see mortgage rates pull back a little bit uh, because of this banking stress, but they're still now, you know, six and a half percent compared to four and a half percent at the start of spring a year ago. Uh, affordability is still really rough. Home prices are still very high and the supply of homes for sale is supremely weak right now as we're getting into spring when you usually see people put their houses on the market. We're seeing a huge drop in new sellers coming onto the market in March. They should be flooding the market. Aaron, do you want them to hike by a quarter point next week? Because ironically, if they do, maybe the 10 year yield drops and that's how you know, it, it, the, I guess I'm trying to say the mortgage rate might respond opposite to what they do with the rate hike. So it's yeah. And that's what we see through the fall. Um, I do think a quarter point is where we should settle out. Um, we also have to remember that the Fed funds rate and the mortgage rates are not identical. They have a lot more inputs into mortgage rates. And a lot of times what we saw through the fall is even though Fed funds rate kept hiking, mortgage rates actually declined. So right now we're pretty much at historic um, medians for 30-year rates. It's a 7.77% is the average over the last 50 years. So we still have an opportunity to lock in a decent rate. It's not a home run anymore, but I personally hope we never see 2.5% mortgages again because that's why we're in the conundrum that we're in today. Uh, I, maybe if we make them 40-year mortgages, maybe <laughs> maybe 50-year. Uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you both, Aaron Sykes and Diane Olick. We appreciate it. As we turn to the jobs market, what explains the persistent strength there in jobless claims? Let's bring in Julia Pollack from ZipRecruiter now. Julia, before or, or maybe as part of answering that, do you guys have any kind of um, high-frequency data that tells you about the labor market in the last couple of days and weeks here? Absolutely. We, we watch them minute to minute. And very interestingly, job postings online actually ticked up this week. I was expecting them to fall amid this enormous business uncertainty. And past research shows that uncertainty can have a very chilling effect on hiring. It's not happening yet. Right. Why do you think that is? So I think that while it is the year of efficiency in Silicon Valley, it's still the roaring 20s on Main Street. You know, economist Nick Bloom just came out with a fascinating study that shows that Wednesday afternoon uh, golf sessions have gone up 278% because of remote work. So there are all these shifts in demand that are still taking place and employers are rushing to adjust. So hiring at restaurants, at airports, uh, for airlines, or hotels is still very, very intense uh, and, and urgent. How soon might you expect to see fallout from the SVB collapse? Uh, or could it take quite a while, actually, for its full effects to show up? So we could see it show up in the labor market in the next few months, and that's because large amounts of banking deposits are now moving to large banks from those small regional banks that are a key source of funding for small businesses and for startups. And uh, you know, business applications skyrocketed after the pandemic, and they have 
remained really, really high ever since. Uh, so these new entrepreneurial small businesses are a key source of job openings and of job growth right now, uh, but they could be disrupted by this new crisis. I was going to ask because you know others have documented the overwhelming share of openings and hiring has been from small businesses. Any idea kind of of that breakdown, Julia? And if we've moved from seeing the bigger firms get hit last year to now seeing more impact on the smaller uh, players in this economy that obviously the recent bank stress would only magnify. I think this is a you know, real-time issue, and we, we could see it in the coming weeks and months. Uh, this is this is really the, the big risk to watch. But there are others, too. I mean, rising interest rates historically have hurt construct, uh, employment in manufacturing, construction, uh, mining, uh, and, and other interest rate-sensitive industries. And, uh, and we are seeing a big pullback among enterprise companies that, that doesn't seem to be pausing just yet. All right, Julia, thank you. We appreciate being able to check in with you. See you soon, I hope. Julia Pollock with Thank you. ZipRecruiter. Coming up, the FDIC ensures deposits up to 250 k but what if you've got a cash hoard in the eight or nine figures? We'll tell you where the wealthy are moving their money to. Some interesting names and why. Well, you probably know why. Uh, don't miss CNBC's newest show with Last Call either. It's with Brian Sullivan, and you can catch it weeknights at 7 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. Welcome back. We have more breaking news on the First Republic cash infusion. Let's get to David Faber. David, what are you hearing? Well, Kelly, following up on a story that we brought you earlier uh, towards the end of, uh, of the noon hour, um, we can give you more details on this potential, I guess you want to call it a rescue plan. Maybe you do. Maybe some others want to. Uh, so we'll use that uh, name. I'll call it also the, this bank consortium uh, deposit plan. How's that? Uh, and it is now going up. I had originally said perhaps more than or roughly 20 billion, um, but there are more banks and more commitments uh, to what is expected to be, again, an uninsured deposit by all these banks. Bank of America, Wells Fargo, JPM, Citi, all I am told by uh, the many people who seem familiar with this now at 5 billion. Morgan Stanley, two and a half. Interesting to note, no word on Goldman Sachs. Truist, PNC, U.S. Bancorp, uh, I, I, I think it's MMT. Is it MMT? Capital One, uh, all in for a bill. Um, Add it up, you get to about 27 and a half right there, Kelly, and perhaps there will be more. Uh, the Fed and the Treasury have been coordinating this unusual plan in which it's not about buying the equity. It's not about um, taking a preferred of some kind. It's not about taking loans off their hands or anything like that. It's simply putting in a huge slug of uninsured deposits. I don't know what they're going to be getting paid on those deposits, by the way, to help instill more confidence in this particular institution and hope that this is kind of the last of what they hope, again, would have been a short series of dominoes. We all came into Monday thinking without any Fed assistance, First Republic was in big trouble. Got that Fed assistance in terms of at least an unexplicit or an in, you know, in a guarantee of uninsured deposits. But now you also have these big banks uh, and large regionals coming in, Kelly, to support uh, First Republic on its deposit side. So, David... Are you surprised by the reaction in the equity, the, this 12% rally now, or does that make sense to you based on these details? It makes sense uh, because, you know, frankly, as this day began, 
uh, what I and I'm sure many other reporters were trying to put together was not a good situation at First Republic. I talked about a $25 billion hole in the balance sheet, perhaps, in terms of they had to mark down assets. And so you wondered, are we going to get to a point where uh, they are going to need to be either uh, for sale, for sale with government assistance of some kind, liquidation. It didn't look particularly good in some ways. Again, these situations are dynamic, as we say so often. Things can change very quickly. Uh, but this plan, if it works, and that's a big if, and again, we expect it to be announced later this afternoon, uh, conceivably would stem any further deposit losses at the institution instill the confidence that is felt like it would need, and then allow it to just go on about its business, which is, you know, been a valuable franchise, uh, certainly of making mortgages to high net worth people, a lot of real estate related lending and things of that nature. So yeah, to the extent that it allows the equity to go on, the company to actually resume its, its trajectory, obviously you have to wonder about its cost of funds overall and whether that is going to be heightened over time. And certainly no. that would seem to, to uh, perhaps penalize its earnings power over time, Kelly. But it's a much better scenario than many could have anticipated even a few hours ago, frankly. Sure, although it's a bit odd as well to see, you know, eight leading U.S. banks having to come and shore it up and, and, and see the equity doing what it's doing. I mean, maybe there were no management missteps here, uh, but the very business that you cite by having this big mortgage book, those are all fixed rate loans that they extended. Uh, that's not a great thing to have uh, extended when rates start to spike. So, you know, I, I understand that, you know, no one, everyone feels bad when people panic and start pulling deposits out. I totally understand that's a very unique situation we almost rarely ever see. But there were also perhaps some management moves here that might need a, a closer look. And, and you wonder after things stabilize, if they do, and we hope they do, uh, what that comes back to. That's a, no, those are all very good points. Uh, you know, obviously, I think a bit different than Silicon Valley Bank, which clearly made a huge bet on duration as well of its securities portfolio when it received a huge influx of deposits a few years back, and rates obviously were very low. But you're right, uh, and one would expect that would be the case. But again, right now, they're just trying to, uh, at Fed and Treasury uh, and amongst these banks, they're just trying to deal with whatever they can to sort of create more confidence and stop this, let's call it, mini banking crisis that we've been in the midst of for the last week or so. Uh, and it was clear, at least from my reporting, that it was not clear at all that anybody would step up to buy this thing, mm. to actually pay some sort of price for First Republic. Because to do so, Kelly, would have meant a change in control. It would have meant a markdown of even the held to maturity assets. And that's where, to your point, yeah. a lot of things are not going to look good when exactly. you mark them, right? Exactly. Given the rise in rates. And so nobody wanted to take that hit to their book value to do that deal. This perhaps an elegant solution, if it works, at least in sort of saying, hey, those things don't need to be marked. You can go on on your way. And now you have enough in deposits and confidence right. to continue past this crisis. Well, no matter what, it's excellent reporting, David. Uh, the detail, especially, I want to make sure everybody just caught that there uh, with the names on the screen and the amounts contributed. Thank you for bringing that to us. I'm sure it's not the last we'll hear from you in the next little bit here. David Faber at the New York Stock Exchange. Speaking of these bank cash concerns, the wealthy have been shifting their assets around. Let's get to Robert Frank. He's here with that story. And they're moving up to some interesting places, Robert. Yeah, Kelly, as David mentioned, a lot of wealthy clients at first. Republic, and that's why we're seeing a lot of these big investors and wealth investors making two big moves after this banking crisis that we're in. They're shifting money out of the smaller banks and out of cash balances. Advisors saying big investors were already moving their cash from checking and savings account into higher yielding treasury and money markets. 
That's only accelerated over the past week since those are investments are not on the bank balance sheets and therefore less at risk. Now, they're also moving away from banks and into custodial accounts like Fidelity, Pershing and Schwab. Schwab saying clients are moving an average of two billion dollars a day in net new assets into that firm this month. Custody accounts avoid that bank risk and allow a lot more flexibility for stock ownership and to change advisors. This was a real wake-up call to ultra-high-net-worth individuals who have cash around that, you know, why have money at a bank, um, in, in a bank deposit, if it's not necessary, if you can simply own a money market fund in a brokerage account? And wealthy clients also pushing back on the widespread practice by banks of requiring deposits or primary banking relationships in exchange for loans or mortgages. You can read a lot more about where family offices are putting their money and investing in our latest family office investor interview. That is on CNBC Pro today. Can you imagine that if you were in 2008? You said in the next banking crisis, people are going to be moving their money into money market funds. Into money market because, funds, yeah. which, which was the, a big no-no during the financial crisis. Absolutely. A lot of people moved them into the banks. It tells you also about the lack of alternatives. There's really not a lot of great, safe places to put this kind of capital and I don't know if we're just going to keep ping-ponging this around. Well, and where yields are, it just makes sense not to have any money unless what you need in yeah. cash right now. You have to have in something that's earning 4 or 5%. Exactly. Robert, thank you. Thank Robert you. Frank. All the focus on the health of the banking system, but let's not forget about that U.S. consumer. If Academy Sports and Outdoors is any indication, maybe they're still doing all right. The shares are not only climbing today, that's despite a mixed earnings report. The comps were down 5%, but helped partially by higher ticket prices. Gross margins up 50 basis points thanks to lower freight costs. Shares just a fraction below their all-time high, up 400% since going public in 2020. Let's bring in Ken Hicks, Academy Sports and Outdoor CEO. What a story, Ken. Welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Are you seeing any signs of consumer stress that match the kind of panicky bank headlines we've been getting the past week? We, we, are, we know the consumer stress, and we are a value retailer, and so we are seeing the consumer uh, gravitate a little bit more to value, but they're buying what they want, and uh, they you know, as far as their discretionary income, they're they're putting more of it into things they want to do, which is what we sell, uh, like sports and outdoor activities. So where in particular, and, and this is something we heard from some of the grocers, the big box chains, they say they can see inflation shifting consumer preferences. Do you see that easing up at all? I mean, in other words, we know the price pressures have stopped being as bad as they were, but prices are still higher than they were. And now we see some signs of a slowing economy. We see some fraying in parts, for instance, of subprime auto, things like that, Ken. Um, would you say that that's just a one-off or would that make sense to you? No, there, there definitely is pressure. But one of the things is, is how people deal with it. And for example, you know, bicycles, we, that's a, that's a business where we have a, a good position in, but we want to maintain that opening price, hundred dollar bicycle and $59 bicycle for kids. So we work shorter on that opening price and, and on some of the higher price, we may take a little bit more margin on so that we can continue to offer for that customer who's really challenged uh, a good value as opposed to, you know, them, you know, not not being able to buy a bike at all because it's gone up 
$20. Right. Maybe make it up on the fancy fly fishing equipment yeah. or something like that. So a you're, helmet or whatever. Sure. You're a business yourself. Where's your money? What banks? What money market funds? I mean, do you do you sympathize with those people who got trapped in the banks out west or do you do you think they're, you know, not indicative of the rest of the economy? No, it, we've got <laughs> I'm actually old enough. I went through this in Texas in the 80s mm-hmm. when the oil industry uh, a similar situation with the banks. We're fortunate in that our, our money as a company is in the large banks. It's very secure and we feel very, very safe. Uh, but that said, we have seen some of our vendors, we're getting calls from them as they move their money around and, and have to change uh, their banking relationship with us. But it, you, you have to have sympathy for people. It was nothing that they did that put them in the position where their money's at risk and they have to change a banking relationship that they might have had for years. You know, I was just saying to the producers this week, I want to talk to someone who went through the Texas banking crises. <laughs> I, I didn't know you were going to be that person, Ken, so thank you. Um, I, I was just curious if we had any kind of regional sour grapes or anything over what happened, but it sounds like people understand the, the risks out there. And do you think those better relationships are just going to normalize here pretty quickly? I, I think they will. I mean, there will be some uh, collateral damage and uh, some banks. But I don't think we'll see what happened in Texas. Back back in the 80s, Texas had three of the 10 largest banks headquartered in Texas. By the end of the 80s, they didn't have any in the top uh, 20. Wow. I don't think you're going to see that uh, this time. Well, I appreciate the, the dose of levity and uh, seriousness. It's always the opposite of the one that I think. Ken, and, and congrats again in a very tough environment that may yet get tougher. Uh, you're putting up these results, and we thank you for your time today. Well, thank you. We appreciate it. Ken Hicks, Academy Sports and Outdoor. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.